Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify your candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Design Action Collective is looking for a lead web designer in Oakland, California. Companies, stop making excuses on your diversity and inclusion efforts and post your job listings with us. You know, for just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you throughout our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and I've got two quick things to mention before we get started. First, submissions are now open for Recognize, a design anthology featuring essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color, the next generation of emerging design voices. Now, this year's theme is Fresh, F-R-E-S-H, and the deadline for submissions is April 30th. So make sure you read the rules, though, before you submit. You can do that over at recognize.design. Again, the deadline for submissions is April 30th, so don't forget. Secondly, and this is for all of you who are listening who happen to be in the Atlanta metro area, I would love it if you would come out to the Museum of Design Atlanta for Creative Atlanta 2020. Now, this is an interview series that Revision Path is putting on with the Museum of Design Atlanta, and the goal is to highlight black creatives in the city that are ranging from an award-winning cellist to a Harvard Graduate School of Design Loeb Fellow. The first conversation is going to take place this year with Okori O.K. Cello Johnson. I'll be interviewing him on March 26th at 6.30 p.m. at the Museum of Design Atlanta. That's at 1315 Peachtree Street. Tickets are on sale right now, so just head on over to museumofdesign.org and get yours today. I will also make sure to have a link in the show notes so you can get that. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like GitHub, but for designers... Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Terry Biddle, Product Design Director at EdTech company EverFi in Washington, D.C. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Terry Biddle. I'm a Product Design Director, and I live in Washington, D.C. Now, you work for a company called EverFi. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, EverFi is an education technology company, just to put it in a nutshell, we make education technology products. So 
anything that you can think of as far as like online courses, we make them. We make them from kindergarten through 12th grade for adult learning, for technology companies, for schools, for banks, you name it. That's what I do in a nutshell. I make uh, online courses for all types of learners. Nice. How did you get started there? It's kind of an interesting, interesting tale. So before I worked at EverFi, I had my own company called The Nell and I sort of, you know, got my feet involved in the tech community in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And we may get into this a little bit later, but shortly before I was getting ready to start The Nell, start launching The Nell, my CTO left the company. And so it, I was left with making a decision that a lot of tech companies have at the time is like, all right, now, what do I do uh, right before launch? Do I keep this going? Do I stay active or do I find myself another job in the tech industry? So I found myself another job in the tech industry, basically. And one of my really good friends in the uh, tech community ended up uh, working at Everfine. He said, hey, you know, you know, they have some positions that are open for uh, designers. Maybe you should check it out. And so I did. And now I work at Everfy. And uh, it's been a pretty good experience so far. Nice. What kind of projects are you working on now? You mentioned these courses, but like in general, what kind of stuff are you working on? Just to make it like really easy for folks to understand, I basically make web applications. Like I design like web applications. So they, we make them for, you know, responsive design, of course. So it's going to be, you know, viewable on, on web all like, you know, web platforms like tablet, desktop, mobile phones. So I design, lead like a small team of designers, like international designers, actually a lot of the designers that are part of the team that with the courses that I help build are based in uh, Argentina, mainly Buenos Aires, Argentina. And we have uh, quite a few designers in the, uh, in the DC office as well. And we also work, you know, a lot with, we do a lot of like uh, communication with our development team also just to make sure everything, you know, works the way we, we intend it to do, intend it to work. It's a l- really collaborative. UX is really involved. UI design is really involved in the process too. So it's like a lot of trial and error, a lot of like communication also with our content team. Uh, we, we work really closely with our, you know, content writers and our instructional designers and uh, learning experience designers as well to, you know, craft uh, courses that, you know, are going to make sense to learners. So it's really like a lot of like, okay, does this make sense on this page? All right, now this, does this make sense to navigate to that page? It's there's actually a good deal of science that goes into it. And it's not just visual. So that's a, a lot of what our, our my day-to-day is. What's the best thing about what you do? The best thing about what I do. I have, don't know if I've, I've thought about it in that way before. I would... I really like collaboration. I would say the best thing about what I do is working with a team of like people across all different parts of the product team that are just, I work with a lot of really, really smart, like super sharp people. I really enjoy just the camaraderie and the uh, communication and just really coming together and solving a problem like as a group. I really love that. So for me, it's, collaboration is, is the thing that I, I really take the most uh, enjoyment out of, for sure. Now, I want to, you know, get more into your career, including the Nell that you just mentioned recently. But first, let's take it back a little bit. You grew up in Ohio, is that right? 
That's correct. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. Tell me about that. Well, it's a city on the river. Uh, it's right across <laughs> the river from. It's right across the border from Kentucky on the Ohio River. I like to let folks know that Cincinnati, even though it's considered like, you know, a northern state, like it's right on the border of the South. So it's like the last southern state in the north, basically, is what I consider Cincinnati to be, be a lot like. So you can go to Cincinnati and get good barbecue is what I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. That's surprising. And what was it like to live in Cincinnati? So growing up in Cincinnati, I lived in the I lived in Cincinnati proper for the first part of my like childhood. And mm-hmm. then I ended up moving to the suburbs. Uh, my parents are, you know, both college educated. My mom was a teacher. So for her, like education was super, super, super important. Uh, she wanted us to go to school in a district that had higher education standards. So we ended up moving to the suburbs and now went from living in an all black neighborhood in Cincinnati, Ohio to moving to a suburb called Evendale, Ohio. And it was a bit of a culture shock for me, you know, being living in all black neighborhood and then like moving to, you know, a majority white suburb. Mm-hmm. It was cool like as far as finding friends like i was a kid you know i was like you know eight or nine years old so like finding friends and playing was no big deal to me but like this was about fourth grade and fourth grade i the first uh, school that i went to it was majority white i think there were like two black children in the entire school that i was going to it fell a bit out of place you know in retrospect i remember i remember like a couple instances of people saying things that we would definitely consider to be racist now, but it was, you know, something that was not as, you know, considered that back then. And I remember, you know, I had a really good best, I had like a best friend that I used to play with all the time. And then one day we stopped playing. And then I found out later it was because his parents were racist and they forbid him to play with me anymore. So this was like when I was eight years old. So that was probably my first experience with racism and sort of coming to grips with understanding what that was. Uh-huh. So it was kind of a big, it's a big shock to me actually, just to experience that. Cause uh, before that I, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of, I mean, you know, people look different, but you're not really aware that people, it was my first understanding that, Oh, people can just hate me for any reason they want to. So mm-hmm. that was like my first, first, like really coming to terms with it. Yeah. I grew up in Selma, Alabama, so I know all too well that feeling of people just like not liking you, hating you for whatever reason. I mean, they have a reason because they're racist, but I, (laughs) unfortunately, I know exactly what it is that you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's really weird. It's really weird. You know, like I didn't even have the faculties to even understand what that was or how to navigate that at the time. Thankfully, it wasn't a period that really, you know, persists that I had that happen. And then, you know, there are things that, that happen over the course of it. But I will say that as I was growing up in Cincinnati, I always felt like something wasn't, I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't, I felt a lot like I wasn't able to be myself. I felt like being myself was seen as being rebellious. Hmm. And it wasn't until I got older and I went to college in, you know, Washington, D.C., and then eventually I went to grad school in New York City. It wasn't until I was like in those places where I could be myself anonymous and nobody cared. It made me like realize like, oh, my God, I can actually 
be myself and nobody's looking at me. Nobody's like staring at me. Nobody's making me feel like I'm an outsider. Like I used to like dye my hair and stuff when I was in Ohio. Like I used to, I think I dyed my hair red and some hair red and I've like bleached it before. Like I used to, I used to have my ears pierced a lot. Like I used to have my ears double pierced. I had a nose ring. I had like a labrae piercing. Like I used to like, wow. do, you know, do the stuff that a kid, you know, that a kid does, but like, me doing it, being a black guy doing it, it was like, what is this guy? What is this guy? Is he, is he a freak? You know, like people would look at me funny. People would, you know, assume, assume I was gay. Why would it matter if I was, I wanted to be someplace where I didn't feel where I wasn't made to feel like I was an other. So Mm -hmm. that being in DC and, and, and being in uh, New York really made me realize like, all right, I think I need to, move someplace where I can be myself without feeling like I'm made to feel like another person. And when you moved to DC, I mean, you went to, to Howard university for undergrad, which is, I think probably a great place to find yourself. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's a bit of a story about that too. So my freshman year of college, I actually went to a Columbus college of art and design. I got a $20,000 scholarship to Columbus college of art and design. Cause I originally wanted to be an animator for Disney. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. When I graduated from high school, I was like, I'm being an animator for Disney. The Columbus College of Art and Design recruited uh, students from Disney to become animators there. So that's why I originally went to the Columbus College of Art and Design. When I went to that, to that school, I found myself in a similar situation that I felt when I had moved from Cincinnati proper to Evendale when I was about eight years old. You know, when I was like in fourth grade. I was one of the few black kids there and it was a really small school. I think it was like smaller than my high school. And I felt again, like I was an other and Mm it, it made me feel uncomfortable again. And I wanted to experience what it was like to not feel like another, you know, to not have no reason, you know, not to have the most obvious reason for people to, you know, segregate themselves from me. Mm -hmm. So that was, I went to, to Howard. I, I applied to Howard and CCAD and um, got into both. And after I went through my freshman year, I was like, all right, I may go to, let me go to Howard. And also the other part of it was aside from being an animator, like aside from Disney animation, I wanted to study film uh, a little bit more broadly. So I went to Howard to study you know, radio TV film in a more broad fashion and not just focus on the animation part of it. So okay. that's how I ended up in Washington, D.C. So what was your time like at Howard? Oh, man, it was great. I want to say it was the best years of my life. I don't want to say that. Because, like, every year brings something different. I loved going to Howard. I look fondly on the years that I spent there. I had a lot of good friends. A lot of them I still stay in contact with to this day. It was just a really good experience. It's really fortunate, I think, that we live in a time that I think what it means to be black is very different than what it was then. Mm. I think a lot of us were just coming, we're coming into our own with it. Like I started wearing dreadlocks when I was at Howard. Like I had dreads all through Howard. I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think how many years I had dreads. I had them for a long time. I had them for five or six years straight. Then I had to groom them again for like another like seven years after that. And, like and what years were this? So Howard was 97 to 2000. Okay. All right. Yeah. 
this was I forgot I have to say the year because <laughs> no, no no I'm thinking like this is like post no what, listeners yeah. no 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 I'm also thinking like this is when you talked about you know sort of the different ideas of black because I'm kind of also trying to quantify it within like what else was going on in history and pop culture then so this is like post a different world you know post a different, um, LA yeah, riots so that sort of thing million man yeah. march etc yeah yeah I, in fact I should I should probably say i should probably like talk a bit about that because so one of the big thoughts about going to howard then was this is when we didn't really have any black directors that were mainstream successful at that Mm -hmm. time and john singleton this was a few years after boys in the hood came out so boys in the hood came out and it was just like it just blew up you know the mainstream you know spike lee was on the scene at the time as well I should also say John Singleton and I have actually have the exact same birthday on January 6th. Like his death, like really, really got to me. Cause like he was one of the people that, you know, I was looked, looked up to coming up, you know, in addition to like having the, you know, us sharing the same birthday. So it was really, uh, really like shocking when he passed away. But yeah, I mean, that's, this was what pop culture was like. And this is a pre, this is a pre YouTube world. So when I came into school, Google didn't exist yet when I started college, Google didn't exist. We had like a couple of web search engines, I think at the time. So this is, this is like, this is how far back. So we had Lycos, web crawler, <laughs> you was just, you was the most popular at the time. Ask Jeeves. This is what, this is what was out at the time. <laughs> this is a free Google world. And we couldn't even write papers. You couldn't even use the internet to write papers back then. Like to do research for papers, we had to go to the library. We had to use floppy disks. This is an era that a lot of folks don't even know anything about. Dial-up internet, having to to download music with dial-up internet. Man, I remember like sitting in my dorm room, like waiting like fifteen minutes, like to find tracks on on uh, Napster. It's like, all right, oh man, this track. <laughs> it's only gonna be fifteen minutes. Cool, cool, cool. And like fifteen minutes was an acceptable time to download one song. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Just leave that stuff playing overnight to download an album. Oh my goodness. Taking me back, taking me back now. <laughs> yeah, Napster, Kazaa. I think there was one called Audio Lime Scrobbler, Alt LimeWire, all of those, yeah. I remember yeah. that very, very fondly. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Yeah. That was the era. Uh-huh. So you're studying at, at Howard. You you graduated in what, 2000, you said? Graduated in 2000, yeah. I got my undergrad degree in 2000. That was in uh, the School of Communication. Shout out to School of C, uh, radio, TV, and film. So my emphasis was mainly in TV and film. That was where the primary uh, area of my study. So I did a lot of screenwriting and like TV and film production. And like this was back in the day. So we did video editing, like on super vhs and beta video so what was your next step after howard well my next step after howard i thought was going to be going into film industry and but i couldn't quite find a linear path into the film industry back then like the only way to get into the film industry this was again this was like everything was analog then i think when i came out of school there was only one mainstream motion picture that was shot on digital video and that was the Phantom Menace, uh, George Lucas's uh, Star Wars movie, was the first, I think, uh, one of the first mainstream movies that was shot on digital video. So it wasn't, digital video wasn't even mainstream at the time. Like now, 
like most things are probably shot, you know, with like Ari Alexis and like red cameras. Like that wasn't even a thing then. Mm-hmm. So like I think back then what you had to do to break into the mainstream to like do filmmaking was you had to shoot on 16 millimeter. That was, that was the only way to do it. So it was, and it was incredibly expensive. I want to say it was about $10,000 a reel to, to get like 16 millimeter film. So it was incredibly expensive and you had to try to get funds like that. So like if you were going to try to break into the film industry, then you had, the only way to do it was to be a production assistant. You really had to be like a PA in New York or LA to do it. And me from Cincinnati, Ohio, not having any connects in New York City or in LA, I couldn't really find a path to, to do that. You know, I mean, it was really difficult. Like they kind of walled you out. So you would have to like crash on a buddy's couch basically and like work for minimum wage in order to, to do it in, in New York. And I didn't see that path there. So what I ended up doing after that was um, I was always a visual artist that was like the main reason why I went to school in the first place was to be a, a visual artist, uh, to be an animator. So I was like, all right, so I know how to draw, I know how to paint. So I should probably go back to school and do something creative as a profession. I need to find some way to use my creativity as a profession. Now I wasn't actually familiar with graphic design at the time. So it was, um, something that I sort of researched and I ultimately decided to go into uh, studying uh, graphic design as as a major for my graduate school. Some crazy stuff go out in between then. This is around 2001 too, just to give give your listeners a time frame. And this was like during this was like around 9/11. So there were there was quite a lot of stuff that was going on mm-hmm. at the time. I had like I sort of made to, uh, I made was making a decision. It was like what do you call it where you like I was like flipping a coin basically to decide what was the right choice for me to do. So I had, I had applied for, I had asked for some recommendations from some professors at the time to apply to film school for my master's program. But I also was thinking about doing a graphic design as my master's program. And this was right after nine 11, there was a, I don't know if you, if you will remember this or if, or if our listeners will, will remember this, but like there was anthrax, there was an anthrax mail scare that happened right after that. Mm. And a lot of things were put through the mail and people weren't getting their mail. And, and I had some packages that were sent out that were supposed to go to schools that just completely got lost in the mail and I never got them. So I wasn't able to complete my like process. And, you know, the other side of the coin was like graphic design. So I decided to go back to school to Pratt and study graphic design there and their grad com D department uh, that was based in Manhattan. So that's kind of like a crazy, crazy way that I ended up with graphic design. You know, it's interesting. There's like a, and maybe it's because I've had so many people on the show that have sort of followed this similar path, but there's like this pipeline between Howard and Hampton to Pratt University. Or Pratt Institute, I should say. Sorry, Pratt Institute. There's like this pipeline where people will start out at one of those two schools for undergrad for design and then end up going to Pratt. Did you find that there were a lot of Howard folks when you were there? There were a couple Howard folks and there were some Hampton folks too. One of my best buddies at Howard is a, was a, I mean, sorry, one of my best buddies at Pratt was, was a Hampton grad. I think they need to stop the Hampton pipeline. Uh, <laughs> don't, need, don't need more people from Hampton. Going to Pratt. <laughs> That's a Hampton joke for folks that don't know. <laughs> and just to be clear on air, Howard University is a real HU. 
I don't care what anybody tells you. Howard University is the real HU. I just just got to be clear about that. I mean, I, I went to Morehouse, so I don't know if I really have anything <laughs> to say in this whole conversation. But I'll, I'll let you have that one. Okay, you probably uh, witnessed the turf wars then. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, how was Pratt different from Howard? Aside from it being, you know, graduate to undergrad, how was it different? Oh man, I mean, it's I, I don't even know how to explained it. They were so completely different experiences. I mean, first, you know, Howard, I lived in the dorms and Howard. So it was a very, very different at Pratt. I, I lived, you know, I lived in an apartment. I worked a lot while I was in school. So I didn't really work full time when I was in undergrad, but I, I worked almost full time when I was in, in my master's program. So it was a very, like very, very different experience, like working in, I lived in Brooklyn when I was at Pratt. And I would commute to Manhattan to go to class. So it was, I don't know, it was a very, very different, very, very different experience. As far as the the classroom makeup was, of course, very different, obviously. But there were a lot of international students at, at Pratt, too, which was really cool. It was nice to have different perspectives. We had a lot of students from South Korea that were in, in our classes, which was really cool to have, like, some international perspective on uh, things while we were in class. And... I don't know what if I could really talk to the differences because my schooling was so different. I was really doing a lot of TV production and video editing when I was an undergrad. And then uh, Pratt was very like, you know, design focused design. I will say that Pratt's program was really intense. Mm-hmm. It was really, really intense. And there were a lot of the big difference. I would say is that the grad D department at Pratt, the professors were working full time. So a lot of them were there. They were doing it. They were in involved in the process. Like they were actively working in the field. So I think the perspective that we were getting was very, very different than, than what you can see sometimes at universities where, you know, folks are lifelong professors and that's what they do full time. But mm-hmm. I think having the perspective of being a designer that's working is really, really helpful to for students to understand like what market what the market is and not just, you know, understand what the design principles are. Cause like I mean, I'm just gonna be honest, like a lot of what we learn in design school goes completely out the window when you are working, you know, at a big company. Like it just doesn't compute. And you're gonna make you're gonna have to make choices that are completely like counter to what you think you learned in design school. And it's good to have a perspective of folks that, you know, that are working to put food on the table, that are working to employ other people because they have a different, they're going to come at it with a little bit more reality, I think, sometimes than, than what we can learn in a university system. Hmm. That actually is good to know. I, I mean, I didn't go to art school at all, so I was always curious about sort of how much of that transference happens once you graduate and you get out there in the working world, like do you feel like it's equipped you with the basics or not? So that's interesting to know. So right after Pratt, you got your, your master's degree. What was your first like design gig after that? My first full-time design gig was at Reader's Digest. I worked at Reader's Digest for almost a year. Uh, it was, you know, based in uh, Midtown Manhattan and, and DC and sorry, Midtown Manhattan in New York city. I'm near Bryant Park, which is, I think, where Good Morning America puts on their 
their little music show in the summertime, their summer stage. So that was kind of fun walking past there sometimes in the, in the summertime, seeing the, the shows. Yeah, that was my first gig working in publishing at a reader's digest, which is really a big company, but it was, I really learned a great deal from working there. I really got a lot of good chops. We were talking about a lot of back in the day stuff. So let me just like let your listeners know what the deal was then. So the first program, I used Quark 4 to Ooh. get started. And Quark 4, for folks that don't know, had no undos, zero undos. This is, <laughs> I started my design career in a world of no undos. So just so folks can understand that Adobe Distiller. You had to make a a postscript file, and then you had to convert that to a PDF. So that was like the workflow back in the day. Adobe Distiller, Quark Four, no undos. That's how I started my design career. I remember Quark Four, not fondly, for that reason. <laughs> I do remember it though because we used we used Quark, and I think we ended up switching to maybe it was Adobe PageMaker or something. This one I was. I was probably still in high school at this point. No, wait, you said what year was this when you were doing this? This was 2005. Oh, no, I was out of high school by then. We did use Quark in high school, but it it was a previous version that also did not have undo. So I feel your pain there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) But, I mean, you learn learn really, really quickly how to to make it work. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. You end up adapting to the situation for sure. Now let's talk about the Nell. Like, where did the idea come from to create that? It's interesting. So, like, we have it came from a lot of what we were just talking about. So, I came out of school as an undergrad in a pre YouTube world. There wasn't any way for the creators of color really to get their work out into the world at the time when I came out of school. Um, it wasn't really easy, but now, I mean. I think when I thought of this idea, you know, Vine was still kicking around, you know, YouTube exists, Vimeo exists, but there still wasn't quite the, quite the pipeline to get uh, creators of color, you know, a moment to shine. I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but social media is completely broken in the United States. The way Twitter and Facebook have sort of, that's what I'm looking for, amplified the loudest voices. and it's really difficult to be heard outside of the noise and outside of some of that negativity. I wanted to try to find a way to uh, create a platform where, where marginalized voices would feel like they had a place to showcase their work, but also a place where they could feel safe online without dealing with the idea of harassment. So I wanted to create sort of a video. I wanted to create a video platform that was for marginalized voices. And that's really, really what I, how I thought of the idea for the Nell. I wanted to create the platform that I wish existed when I was, you know, coming out of school at Howard. Mm-hmm. And that's really how the idea came about. Yeah. I checked out the website and looked at the the video. I really like that kind of bell animation. It kind of reminds me of almost like after school special. <laughs> <laughs> When they have the little rotating text or whatever, like this is a special after school special announcement or something. I really like the the branding with that. How has it been going Thanks. so far? Well, I'm gonna be real. I'm, I'm probably going to wrap it up in in the in the near future. It's really really difficult out here for Black entrepreneurs to 
sort of get the heat behind, you know, stuff like this. It's, it's really hard to find, you know, the funding and to find the people and the manpower to really get, to get your, your thing off the ground. And I will say that I learned so much from it. I learned a great deal in the tech space from doing it, but it's been really, really difficult to, to get off the ground. And I think it might be a uh, time to put it on the back burner for a while until I can come back to it at another time. Now that I've got a full-time job and I just uh, actually, I have a one-year-old daughter who just uh, turned one a few days ago, as a matter of fact. So uh, being dad, being a dad now, having a full-time job and I'm going to have to let my other baby chill out for a little bit until I can come back to it in a better, in a better spot. Yeah. You have a whole new, a whole new life to take care of now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. She definitely keeps me busy. Now with everything that, that you're doing, I mean, with, with work and everything, one thing that really sort of stuck out to me as I was doing my research, and we, we talked about this a little bit before recording, is that you've created your own typeface. We, we've, yeah. we've, had, we've had a few type. Well, I think we've only had two, two typographers on the site, on the uh, podcast before. But tell me about your typeface and how you came about creating it. Oh, man. Let's see. How did I come about this? I'm like a type geek. Like I was obsessed with typography. When I went to grad school at Pratt, one of my professors was this uh, gentleman named uh, Tony Despina. Mm. And I don't know if, if folks know who Tony Despina is, but I just want to let people know that he's like one of the, he is a kind of a design legend. He worked for Herb Lubalin. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the typefaces that are really like popular now, he helped design. Like uh, Lubalin Graph, Avant Garde. Serif Gothic. Those are, I think he's credited with creating Serif Gothic. It's um, for folks. It was one of the typefaces I think that was used a lot in the eighties. I, I'm, I believe even the Cosby show used to use it in its titles as well. And yeah. did a lot of hand lettering. So I learned a lot of typography techniques from uh, Tony Despina. And I, for my grad school, a thesis I did like a really like a type based thing where I like sort of I did like a redesign of the New York City subway system and where I like designed a typeface. But I studied, you know, it was pre UX. It was like, you know, I did all the legibility tests and all that all that. So I was really, really into the geekery and the like the science behind legibility and, you know, understanding like cognition and things like that. And after, you know, having my hands and like getting into really, really nitty gritty type design, I kind of want to do something that was a little bit more fun, more free. I really loved hand lettering. Hand lettering was something that I pretty much always did growing up. And it wasn't until I went to Pratt that I found an actual application for like understanding how to make typography, you know, legible. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, let me just play around with some letters. And I just started drawing these letters, you know, and inking them with an ink brush. And I was like, I really like how that looks. I think my initial ones were I was making a new website for myself and I was just drawing a bunch of type. And one of the treatments that I had done with hand litter type, I really liked and I wanted to take it further. So I just drew it all by hand. I drew every single individual letter out by hand and then I started scanning it in and decided to make a typeface out of it. Now, little did I know when I started doing that, uh, how difficult it was going to be from start to finish because it took me several years to actually get it going. 
if I were to put it all together, I would say from start to finish, it probably took about two years total to do it. But I sort of stopped in between on the way and then came back to it later on. But it was fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun, but then it gets really, really super, super technical after a while. Mm-hmm. And because it's a layered typeface, so like folks who can't see it, the typeface that we're talking about is called Bizzle Chisel. It's actually like a series of four fonts, but you layer three of them on top of each other and they make like a dimensional typeface. So it looks like it's like chiseled out of stone. And when you do that, you have to make sure that each layer lines up exactly perfectly. It was after I had designed it, you know, you can submit it to my fonts for, for font creation. And, and after you submit, they give you pointers on like, all right, your printing's off and like, yeah, you need to work on this and your tracking and all that. Like they give you all these like details about how to get your font ready for a commercial release. So did some more tweaking after that. And then lo and behold, they accepted it. It was, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty neat and fun experience to come back to it and then like have, you know, some pay faces for sale on my font. So hey, that's something I can say I did. That's cool. Nice. Would you ever make another typeface one day? Oh, would I ever make another typeface someday? I've made other typefaces. I just haven't released them. Yeah. Oh, okay. I keep, like, I have some typefaces that I just use for my, my own personal use. Like, I made, like, a handwriting typeface that I keep on my computer that I just use from time to time whenever I'm making, like, a comic type treatment, uh-huh. things like that. I might someday expand the set and, and release it. But, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work to do a type to do a typeface. Uh, there's just so much work, and it's... It can be a really tedious process. Mm-hmm. It's difficult sometimes to find the time to do it. But yeah, I mean, I think I think one day when I'm like retired on a on my my island or or at the beach or something, I might just like crack open you know some font software and just like start making some typefaces again and have some more free time. I can see mm-hmm. myself doing. Yeah, there's a, a typographer we've had on the show. You may have heard of him. His name is Trey Seals. He's out there in the DMV area. He's made a number of different typefaces, mostly centered around i think like protest signs and protest imagery from the the 60s and before but he's made a number of different typefaces i remember when i had him on the show he talked about how it's it's really a it's a very painstaking process that goes into it even for something that you would think oh there's like 26 letters and you know, uppercase, lowercase, maybe throw in some numbers, some punctuation. There are these glyphs that we see all the time, but we never really think about construction of them, especially in a unified family sort of way, like a typeface. Yeah, it's really, it is painstaking. There's a lot of detail that goes into it. It's it's not as easy. Like if you're doing something hand, handwritten, it's not as easy as just like, oh, you draw it and you scan it in. Like, well, you scan it in, you're going to bring in a lot of artifacts that you have to really clean up for the font software. Because mm-hmm. you have to, you have to make it readable by the software that you're going to use. So you have to simplify the line work a bit to make it. So it's it's quite a lot, quite a lot that goes into it. But like, I mean, some of that nitty gritty stuff though is can be the fun part of it once you get into it. Like, I want to. The next thing that I want to do is I want to take a crack at making a super family. Mm-hmm. I really love like uh, type super families. So I would love to take a crack at doing that at some point. But that's, of course, a lot of painstaking, a lot of painstaking work. But one of these days, I would love to have a bit of time to really sit down and do it. I love sans serif faces with true italics, man. And I want to <laughs> I want to make a super family. I want to make a sans serif super family with a true italic. So that's that's like one of those things that I'm going to do on my wish list. All right. And now also, as I was you know doing my research, I saw that you 
I've also been a design educator at an HBCU. You taught at University of District of Columbia. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I really like, I like teaching. And one of the things that I told myself before I went to grad school, and it was one of the, the big reasons I wanted to go to grad school is that I wanted to, I wanted to be able to teach other students. Uh, it's really, I think it's important to me in particular to sort of give back in a way to like pass knowledge on to give people insight and to help them grow, you know, in a way that that may not have, you know, been available to you at the time. I want to be able to do that for other other people. So that was that to me was one of the main reasons that I really wanted to be be a professor. I really love talking about something in class and sort of seeing their eyes light up when you can tell that you've like completely blown their mind. Uh-huh. Like there's, there's just nothing like that when you, when you see them have like this aha moment where you're like, Oh man, where like you can tell that they really like got something that you said. Yeah. And it may not even be something big or like something grand, but it's, it's something you say and, and you like see them like take it in. It's really rewarding. It's really rewarding to, to see like a student like learn. I just love like being able to pass that on and, and, and really helping folks know in their path in the future so that's that's one of the main drives for me to to teach i really i really wanted to to do that to to give back some of that knowledge and to make a path easier for others what do you think your students teach you everything i mean it's funny you say that because one of the things that i say that i always say to my students is it doesn't matter how old you are you can always learn something from somebody else and say, as much as I would like you to learn from me, I'm learning from you as well. I don't think it matters what age you are. You can always learn something new. That was something that I learned from my grandma. My grandma was always, my grandma was a voracious reader. Like she would read always, always, always until the day she died. She was reading, absorbing like books and was always up to date on what's happening in the you know political environment. I would remember calling my grandma. We talk about politics all the time. She used to watch C-SPAN. I mean, my grandma watched C-SPAN all 24-7. I learned, I think like what I love learning from people that are younger than me is just a new way of thinking. Mm-hmm. There's always a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things. And I like to be open to, I like to be open to learning something new. You know, I don't think there's any ever going to be a point in my life where there's not something I can learn from someone else. I mean, I, I learn from my daughter every day. Actually, one of the things I learned from my daughter is just what it's like to find out what's new in the world or just be exposed to what's new in the world. Like that's the coolest thing about like now having a really young child is you actually get to witness someone learning something for the first time. You get everything to them is new. So it really sort of makes you... I learn how not to take things for granted in a, in a way by seeing people learn something new every day. It just really keeps you open and makes you really like grateful and thankful for, for what you have when you, when you see how amazing things, like when you see how amazing things can be, like when you see like kids' eyes light up when they see something for the first time, you're just like, you know what? That is really neat, right? That's really cool. Like it is amazing that this sunset is amazing. Those colors are amazing. Like, look at that rainbow, you know, just like stuff like that. That we're just like, all right, keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that sunset 20,000 times. But like, you know, if you spend a little extra time looking at that sunset, like, it's amazing. You know, like, there's just so much beauty, I think, that we take for granted. 
and I and that's something that I I think of that I learn from from everyone is just how they experience something is can always learn something from another person's experience with something. What keeps you motivated and inspired these days to create? Mm, what keeps you motivated and inspired these days to create? I don't know if I have one particular source. One thing that I usually do is what I usually get inspired by is something that's completely opposite the thing that I'm doing. I find that it's best to like have your head outside of the realm that you're in to find something new. Like I don't, I don't read a lot of design blogs. Like I used to back in my younger, like earlier career, I used to read like all the design blogs. I used to read all about design. I don't do that as much anymore. I like to read about tech and science and math sometimes everything art mm-hmm. music that's what i do i read i read a lot i love reading there's you can i mean there's so many things that you can learn the reason i like looking at something that's completely opposite of, of what the creative thing is that i'm doing is that it really frees it frees your mind from the thing that you're actively trying or problem that you're trying to solve and you may find an answer to the problem that you're solving in something else because like we are all part of like I mean, the world is more interconnected than we often like to think, you know, like the same, you know, the golden, I'm not, I'm not to throw like a design term out, but you know, like the golden ratio. Like I, I think about that all the time, actually, like you look, how many times is that shape replicated throughout the world, you know, in, in the things that we make in like patterns outside, you know, everything is, is connected in some way. So I think that a lot of times finding a solution to something or finding like inspiration in something comes from outside of the thing that you're and outside of the realm that you're in. I think that also keeps your mind open and it keeps your mind open. It doesn't uh, block you into thinking that you're the answer to what you're looking for exists only within your particular realm or only your, your particular Avenue. So like for me, like it can be anything that's not design is, is really where I look for inspiration. Anything that is not specifically in the design world, I look, look for inspiration. Mm. What do you appreciate most about your life right now? This one's really easy for me. Having being a new dad is the thing I most appreciate about life right now. There's nothing like being a dad. As a, I, I'm a first-time parent, so I'm probably gushing more. I'm sure folks who have more kids who might be listening to this are like, "Mm-hmm." Wait till you get to the third <laughs> one. <laughs> but you know, right now I'm still in the I'm still in that little baby bliss period. So it's really cool to me to. Uh, it's just nothing like it. It's really changed my perspective being a dad. A lot of the things that I would do before I had a child are not the things that I would do now. Like to me, my main priority is, is getting home and seeing my daughter, uh, getting mm-hmm. home and, you know, having dinner with my daughter and, and seeing her off to bed or like giving her a bath and things like that. That's hands down pretty easy for me right now is uh, spending time with my daughter. So one of the themes that we kind of have, for the year here, you know, it's 2020, the whole future is now sort of thing is like, how are you using the skills that you have now to, you know, basically do good in the future? So I'll ask you this question. How are you helping to build a more equitable future? Well, I spent a good amount of my life post 2016 with the Nell doing that. That was that was really my big driver. 
for quite a while. Right now, what I'm doing is I am participating in in some groups, company I work for at Everfi, actually. Uh, we're about to start a mentorship program. So right now, I think I am going to be helping you know the next generation of kids coming up to uh, help them get a foothold in you know, the design and really in the professional world. So mentorship is, is my next step, I think. I did a little bit of that as a professor, but now I'm going to be able to do a bit of that uh, where I work. And I think that's what I'm going to be doing for, for 2020 for sure. Nice. What did you think you were going to be doing five years ago? Like in 2015, what were you thinking you'd be doing now in 2020? Man, oh man, that was a, that's a really interesting question because that was 2015 was like a sort of a pivotal year where I was sort of making decisions. What did I think I would be doing right now? I think that I thought that I'd be doing pretty close to what I'm doing now, or I'd be doing something in the entertainment realm. Uh, I had another little detour where I did some stand-up comedy. And actually, 2015 was interesting because I uh, helped do Washington, D.C.'s uh, first comedy hack day. Mm, where okay. I was, where I sort of got into, where I started like made a connection to tech, but I'd also had some connection to the comedy world because I started doing like stand up comedy during that time. So it was sort of like an intersection between like you know my entertainment background and tech. So I would say that I would probably be doing something pretty similar or or the Nell in some way. And right about now, so I think I'm surprisingly pretty pretty much where I thought I'd be in 2020. Okay. Now to look forward, <laughs> where do you see yourself in the next five years? Well, I'm about to get woo-woo on you. So I kind of like, as a, one of the big changes I had in my life was that I really started to uh, embrace, you know, more living in the moment and living in time. So I try not to think too much about what's going to happen in the future. But since you asked the question, there's like two paths I can see for myself. I love entertainment. I love script writing. Uh, one of the reasons I got into comedy back in the day, it wasn't back in the day, actually, it wasn't that long ago, but one of the reasons I got back, got into stand-up was because I love writing. And I would love to be as part of a comedy writer's room or a TV writer's room. So I can see myself, you know, back in entertainment doing that. Or I would love to either have my own company and or uh, work in the VC realm. I think what's most needed in tech right now is a uh, representation of, really diverse representation in the VC industry. I think in order for the tech industry to change more broadly, we need to have more representation in the VC realm. And I would love to see a more even representation amongst uh, uh, women, minorities, LGBTQIA tech folks to really start driving broader change in the tech industry. So I would love to be you know, part of that movement if that movement were to come in the VC realm. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, you can find me on terrybiddle.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at tbiddy.com. Not tbiddy.com. Tbiddy is my <laughs> handle on Twitter. You can find me there. Okay. I, own t- I, I do own tbiddy.com, but <laughs> which I used to use as a, as a URL uh, shortener for Twitter. But you can find me on terrybiddle.com and, and on Twitter handle tbitty all right sounds good well terry biddle i want to thank you so much for coming on the show 
it's funny when we talked about this before, you were saying like, oh, there's not really something like in particular I sort of wanted to discuss. But I think as we've heard your story and definitely as we've seen you kind of grow throughout the years, just based on what you told us, like it's clear that, you know, forging your own path to be a creative is not an easy task. And I think that's something that a lot of people may forget because creativity from the outside looking in can often look like a very easy thing. Like, oh, you just sit around and just come up with ideas all day or you you draw all day. Like the things that are attributed to creativity when you're a child tend to be discarded as frivolity when you're an adult, which I think is is really odd. But certainly I think what I can draw, hopefully what others draw from your story is that, you know, carving out a career like this is something that takes time. It's not necessarily an easy thing, but I think as long as you have this sort of underlying goal of what it is that you want to put out there in the world that you can really sort of make a name for yourself. And I think certainly you're, you're on your way. I mean, even with the typeface, the type I'm, I am blown away by the typeface because I want to make a typeface. I don't know how to make typefaces. I too am a type nerd. So you got props to me just for the typeface, but overall, I think, you, you know, with, you know, your startup work with the nail, your education work and, you know, even the work you're doing now through Everfy, like you're, you're on your way, man. I mean, we, we profiled you for 28 days of the web. So clearly you're out here making an impact, you know? So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Terry Biddle. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Terry and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like GitHub, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio here in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing help by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You know, we actually haven't had a rating and a review in a long time. If you go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash revision path, that will give you instructions on how to do that. I would love to hear your reviews, your five-star reviews, of course. I'll even read them right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.